story that you may not believe it is true and the names have not been changed to protect the innocent. So when I was a young man, um, my sister said she was going to go roller skating at the roller rink and asked if I wanted to go along. And um, I had roller skated, but not a whole lot, but I went. And it's nothing about my athletic prowess, okay? That's not what this is about. So while I'm going around the track, uh, a man comes over to me. This man worked at the roller rink, and he was kind of like the policeman, a roller policeman. And he walked up to me, or rolled up to me, and he said, you're not allowed to wear dungarees. Now, I had no idea what a dungaree was. And I, uh, what, what did you say? Jeans, jeans, you're not allowed to wear jeans. And, and uh, he said, next time you come, don't wear the jeans. We'll let you skate now. Uh, it just goes to show how old I am. <laughs> no, it just goes to show that the things have changed. There was a time when appropriate dress and things like that. Well, he had given me a law that I did not know existed there. I was able then to curb my behavior. Paul has been talking to Timothy about the law, not the roller rink law, but about the law of Moses and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He was talking to him about the law briefly because false teachers had come in and they wanted it to look like they were teachers of the law. Paul said they were ignorant of the law, did not understand the law. And so Paul gives his explanation on the law. It's only a few verses. There are other places in scripture where we would learn more about the law. But I'd like to begin in verse 8. We covered verse 8 last week, but it's so important to connect it with verses 9 and 10, which we will cover this morning and then, of course, verse 11 caps it off. So Paul, in explaining a little bit about the law, says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. A little play on words there. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scripture here as it applies in the midst of Timothy as the pastor correcting false teaching from these false teachers. But we also learn other things, Lord. We do learn a little bit about what the law was not given for, and what was the purpose of the law. Father, as we discuss those things, may you also bring us to the point where we understand that though the law does not save, it's not the salvation system, it does reveal sin even in our day and age and culture. Father, we commit this time to you Give me the words to say, guard my lips from error. We give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to actually look at verse 8 again. I want to just uh, talk about that for just a moment and, and set the scene for verse 9. Because verse 9 is going to say that, that law was not made for the righteous. And that's going to be an interesting verse to figure out what it means. The law was made for the unrighteous. And then the list of the unrighteous, which is in verses 9 and 10. But we need to connect verse 8 
with verse 9. So let's look at verse 8 again. But we know that the law is good. We think that perhaps these false teachers were accusing Paul of saying the law is not good. But Paul says the law is good. The law was given by God. God is holy. The law gives us that God's holy standard. And so the law is good. The problem is we're not. Man is sinful. And so the law is good. If one uses it lawfully or correctly, and these false teachers were not. These false teachers were suggesting, we believe that they were Judaizers, not so much Gnostics, but Judaizers. We believe that they were indeed saying, yes, you have to believe in Christ, faith in Christ to be saved, but you also have to keep the law, particularly circumcision. Today it's baptism. People say you have to be You have to trust Christ and you have to be baptized. No, it is trust Christ plus nothing. Once you add something, you then defeat the whole principle of grace through faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me say a few things about uh, the law and our sermon last week. So as we try to explain the purpose of the law, And we first began with the first proposition that the law is good because God is the source of the law. The the law wasn't just God saying, well, what would be a good moral standard law to put upon man? Oh, this culture has this law. Let's make it a part of those. No, the law was written on the basis of who God is and his holiness. What the law is, doesn't do is it doesn't save no one can be saved by keeping the law what does the law do it reveals sin as we're going to see in our passage today it reveals man's sin because of the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight no one's going to be saved by doing good deeds or works for through the law comes the knowledge of sin And all you have to do is just break one law, as if there's even a person alive that broke just one of God's laws. So the law reveals sin. God's holy, we're not, and it reveals that. The next point is a glorious point, that it points to Christ. If I cannot save myself through my good deeds, if there's nothing that I can do, is there anyone who can help me? Is there anyone who can save me? Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sin, past, present, future, all of it. Now, that doesn't save everybody universally. What has to happen is I have to come as a humble sinner who is not deserving of heaven, deserving of hell, and I have to place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he died on the cross for me and I trust him as my savior. And at that moment, I am forgiven of all of my sin. So the law shows me that I'm a savior and it's a tutor. It, it's, a, it's a guardian, it, it, teacher. It leads me to go to Christ. And I've already said the next point, which is that the law is not a system of salvation. I've already said that, but if you go through the Bible, looking at what is known as justification, you will find out that you cannot be justified by the law. Justification is the moment you trust Christ as, a, as your Savior, not only are your sins forgiven, but his righteousness is applied to your account. You have to be righteous in order to get to heaven. We're not righteous. Christ is, and his righteousness was imputed to us. And over and over and over again, it says it's justification by faith. There's so many verses that we could turn to uh, to talk about this. But there's just one, uh, just in my memory verses uh, for this month. (coughs) Pardon me, I'm sorry. Paul said in... Philippians chapter 3, and the idea was that he could have taken pride if, in fact, a person could be saved by good works and good deeds. He said, if anybody has a mind to do that, I'm more than you. But this is what he said in verse 8. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things of good works and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Works and receiving Christ are opposed. I must trust him for his work. Verse 9, here's the verse. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Let me say it again because that's the point here. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is sound teaching. That is truth. These false teachers were not teaching that. So the law is not a system of salvation. It never meant, was meant to be. It was to reveal sin and then point to the cross. But there's one further point which I think is going to come into play being connected with verse 9. Well, then what good is the law? Does the law have anything to do with us as New Testament believers? Yes. Not as a system for salvation, but the moral aspect of the law. The moral aspect of God's character always applies to us. So when it says, thou shalt not murder, we can't say, well, because I'm not of the Old Testament now, I'm in the New Testament, I don't have to worry, I can murder someone. No, you can't. It has always been the morality. And we find out that quite a few of the Ten Commandments have been quoted in the New Testament. They're quoted. They're, they're not bad. They're just not a system for salvation. And I'm not talking about the feasts and the Sabbath day or anything like that. I'm talking about the morality of it. That is for us. And there's even scripture that talks about that if you love one another, you have fulfilled the law. This is New Testament teaching. So the place that the law fits today with the believer is it is a moral guide. Although we have the Holy Spirit. So we could go into that even more, but... It is, it is so uh, much entwined in trying to understand the law that we don't get into one error or another. And how much the false teachers were involved in these errors, we don't know. But it is suspected, like many of the other churches in the New Testament, they had these Judaizers, the circumcision. People said you not only have to trust in Christ, but you also have to do a work. Follow the law. You have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul and Peter talked uh, against that in Acts chapter 15. Peter specifically, Paul argued with them in Acts 15 before the council with these men. It's brought to the council. Peter stands up and, and says, it, it is by faith alone in Christ. Now, we put that together and we come to verse 9 of our text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. And it says, realizing that is a participle. In other words, verse 9 is connected with verse 8. It says, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person. In other words, if in order to show that the law is good, if you use it lawfully, you have to realize the fact that law, or I'm going to say even the law, was not made for a righteous person. That's what we read here. And then he's going to go into who it's made for, the unrighteous. But the question, first of all, that we have to answer, and I want to answer it and then move on because we have a lot of sins to cover today. I, is what does he mean by a righteous person? There are many interpretations, but three main ones. And they are, he's talking about philosophically being righteous. In other words, this is what the understanding philosophically of what any law does. It's not made for the person who obeys the law. It's made for the person who doesn't obey the law. The second one is, is, a, is one believed by many good commentators. What he's saying here has a little bit of a tone of irony. 
sarcasm. The law was not made for a righteous person. In other words, self-righteous. And then the third one, the third interpretation is it's not made for those who have been justified, who are righteous, who are believers. It wasn't made for believers in the sense of any kind of a system or anything. Well, let's just quickly go through them. Well, first of all, I, I get it about the law and philosophically, but the, the problem is, is you have man's nature, sinful nature. And so he's always testing it. And of course, uh, maybe what keeps us from speeding is the speed limit and the patrolman who's in the, uh, in the remedial, in the medial strip there, the medium strip, Maybe that's what keeps us. So that's not intrinsic righteousness. That's what Calvin called civic righteousness. You just don't want to get caught. You just don't want to get a ticket. And so because of that, you're going to drive under the speed limit. Well, we're, we're not really into that. And again, the context here is about not just a law, but the law. And we, we see it up there because he says wanting to be teachers of the law wanting to be teachers of the law so we're talking about either the law of Moses which is all the laws or the Decalogue the Ten Commandments sometimes that phrase the law can refer to either when he says we know that the law is good he's talking about the law the law of Moses well, you come to verse 9, and all of a sudden you have the word law with no article in it. Well, there's many times when, whether it has an article or not, it does refer to the law and not just any law. And that's the way I'm going to take that. Uh, that's the way many take that, and we'll explain that why. But um, it, it is allowed to not have an article. I'm getting a little technical here, but all you have to do is go to Romans 7, 7. Um, I believe it is, or is it, let me just check here. Um, if, yeah, Romans 7, 1, right chapter, wrong verse. Uh, it, it talks about the law, so we know it's, it's the law, it has an article, and then the verse says the law again, and there is no article. It is possible. You can't say dogmatically this doesn't refer to the law. That, that's what we're talking about with these false teachers is the law. That is the context. So I, I really don't agree with it being just philosophically, um, you know, those who obey the law don't need the law. It's those who break the law. The next one is self-righteousness. And there are good men who see this one as true, John MacArthur being one. And it's the idea of, when he talks about the righteous person doesn't need the law, there's a tone of sarcasm. You guys think you don't need the law. You guys think you are righteous without it. And so the, the law wasn't made for guys who are self-righteous. You know, it's very similar to what Jesus said. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've not come to call the righteous because there are no righteous all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I have not come to call those who are self-righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And by the way, that's exactly what you have to do in order to become a believer. In order to be saved, you have to come humbly before the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. I, I, I have sinned. And by the way, it, the law is one of the things that helps us realize that. John MacArthur writes, the false teachers with their works system of personally achieved self-righteousness in their own minds had shown clearly that they misunderstood the law completely. And so it's this self-righteousness. And there are, there are other good men that, that believe that. Uh, take it as self-righteousness. And, and it's a possibility. I mean, that, that, that principle is in the scriptures. But then there's the other one where the, the term for righteousness is, re, is, is um, referring to those who are saved and those who have been justified. And I, I have to say that I, I am leaning that way, uh, although if that's not how it is and we get to heaven and find out it was one, the other one, I don't think it was number one, but if it was number two, well, then so be it. That's fine. 
But this is talking about justified righteousness, and it infers that the law was not made for, for those who come to Christ because they did not come through the law system. It's the idea that you can't come through the law. And it's, we've talked about this, our positional truths here. The positional truths that you may not know this whole principle of justification. You may just know you're a sinner. You may just know Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You may just know that if I trust him as my Savior, I'm going to be forgiven and go to heaven. You don't even know what the word justification means. That's fine. But it is a doctrine, and it is taught, and it is something that he does for us, whether we know about it or not. And there's some very good men that hold to this. Ellicott does. S. Lewis Johnson, who many years spoke at this church. Homer Kent and, and various others. Just a couple, of, a couple of thoughts real quick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we need to move on. But Paul's language, most of the time, when he talks about righteous and righteousness, it's justification. Just read the Romans chapter 7. And by the way, on a side note, it is amazing how there are so many today moving away from this doctrine. Men who held it at one time, and they're saying, no, it was the reformers that made up this idea of this justification. Well, so be it, but they didn't make it up. If you look at the scriptures, if you look at the book of Galatians, if you look at the book of Romans, if you look at Philippians, where I just read from, it, it explains what justification is. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It it's comes through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The moment that you trust in him, you receive his righteousness and not your own. So, so often... Paul uses this language. S. Lewis Johnson, who, uh, as I said, many years ago, he had come here. Uh, he was a personal friend to our, our first pastor, John Ward. And uh, his testimony is, is that uh, he was in college, and for some reason he wanted to study Greek, classical Greek. He was not saved, but he, but he learned classical Greek. And then one day he heard the gospel and got saved, and the next day he picked up the Greek New Testament and began to read it. Well, he writes this. In Pauline language, a righteous man is a just man, a justified man, a man who has acknowledged his sin and who has relied upon Christ and the saving work that he has accomplished for his salvation. That's the righteous man. And so it's, it's not that we have to have the law as believers. Uh, it contributed something to our salvation. It contributes something to our sanctification. No, no. And, and this is something that these teachers should have known. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you know this. They ought not to be teaching this in the church. And that's the other thing. They were in the church. We said that they could be uh, several Alexander and the other fellow, they could be those teachers, but they were, they were kicked out by Paul. These are teachers who are in the church uh, saying that they want to be teachers of the law, causing all these controversies. And it, it, it's happening in the church under this auspice of false teaching. Homer Kent writes, Paul is arguing that these law teachers must be charged not to teach in the church as they have been. Then his explanation that the law is not for a righteous man must mean believers in the church. In other words, that's it. You don't want somebody standing up, teaching a Sunday school on the law, and not even understanding how the law all fits in now that we are under grace. <clears throat> and then contextually, if you look at it, verses 8 and 9, so he just gets done talking about it, the law is good if you use it lawfully. And then verse 9, you have a participle. And he, they translate it realizing, but in the Greek, it's literally having known. Or actually, it's a perfect participle, which the, uh, uh, a literal translation would be, let me say it again, let me go verse 8. It says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, correctly, having known and continuing to know that 
law or the law, which is possible, is not made for a dikaios person, a righteous person. The same Greek word that he uses when he talks about justification. Well, the point is, anyway, at least for our point, he is going to really highlight the law was given to reveal sin, to point to Christ. Once you come to Christ, the law can be an aid morally, but that's about it. It's not made for you. It was made to bring sinners to Christ. And that's when we pick it up then. So if it wasn't written for a righteous person, either self-righteous or a justified person, who was it made for? And we're going to spend the remainder of the time looking at this. And one of the things I, I want to also say before we go any further is there is a connection with these words, these sins in verses 9 and 10 with the Ten Commandments. It's a little hard to see, and but every commentary of good commentaries even though they don't always agree on what, was, what is meant by a righteous person, they all agree this has something to do with the Ten Commandments. Number one, it's showing that the law is revealing sin and pointing to Christ. Number two, something we're going to see here, very interesting, how Paul talks about the law, the Ten Commandments, and gives it greater application. He applied the moral law of the Ten Commandments to his day and age. Now, the first set of these sins, we don't quite see it as clearly, but when you get to when you get to where it says those who kill their fathers and mothers, we see honor your father and mother, one of the commandments. The next commandment is you shall not murder. He talks about murderers and so on. So you really can put the latter half together. And, and I see this in here, but let me also tell you that I want to talk about this list, the list of the unrighteous. What is it? What does the law reveal? What does the word of God reveal about sin? And by the way, when you do a study on sin, homarchiology, Charles Ryrie said there are more adjectives that describe sin than there are that describe grace. Not because grace is not good enough, but because man needs to understand sin intimately. Because everybody, we all know how to justify ourselves. And if we don't quite technically do what, what is said, well, I can't be accused of that because I didn't do it like that. Well, sin is sin. And that's where Paul is bringing this out. And I, I find it interesting that he took time to go into all of this. Sure, these teachers would have known what sin was. I'm sure Timothy knows what sin was, but he takes the time to go into them individually, and that's what I'm going to do. Now, let's pick it up then. The first one is, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, there is a connection there. They seem to be in couplets in the very beginning. I'm going to take them one at a time, but they seem to be in couplets. All right, first of all, lawless. What's the list? The list is that a sinner is someone who is lawless, and the law shows you that you're lawless. If you don't obey the law, you're lawless. Well, it, it's, it's the Greek word anamos, which means not according to the law or not lawfully. It means you're not subject to the law to God's law. And it probably also refers to you're really not subject to any law. And you have, or the person has the attitude, is, I don't care what they say. I don't care if the man says I can't wear dungarees or not. I'm not wearing dungarees. I'm wearing jeans. It's the idea that some people just don't care. I don't care what you say. I will do what I want. And you know, we almost have to be a little careful as Americans. We have chutzpah. We have chutzpah that no one tells us what to do, including the creator. Well, so it's lawless. So it's kind of interesting. And, and, and although we might look at that as well, you know, that's not that bad. Let me just point out a couple of references. First of all, if you go to 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 2, verse 8, and you don't have to go there, we find out about the Antichrist. And what's the name of the Antichrist? The lawless one, the ultimate lawless one. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So it's the lawless one is the Antichrist. And so you see the degree and intensity that it can go to. Also, too, when we're thinking about Christ and we're thinking about salvation, the Bible says that Christ was numbered with the lawless. In other words, he took our sin. He died for our sin. He died for all of our lawlessness. In Luke chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus said, For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, that he was numbered with transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. He was numbered with the thieves on either side of him, but ultimately he was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our lawlessness. And that's what it refers to. And we see this not only in Paul's day, but we see it in our day, do we not? That people just don't have any regard for the law or anything anymore, which, which really describes the next adjective. It's right, uh, rebellious, rebelliousness. Uh, that's the idea. I'm not going to submit to anyone or anything. It's the word hupotasso, means to arrange under, to submit, not with the alpha as the negative. And this word is used for believers. This word is used for, the word hupotasso is used for believers. They are to submit to the Lord. They are to submit to one another. It's used for wives to submit to your husbands. But when you put the alpha in front of it, not, no, no way, no how. That's what rebellion is. I'm not submitting myself under the authority of another. Now, it's interesting that Paul would refer to this in Titus and said that the false teachers are rebellious. Many of them are rebellious. Not just because, not just because they made a mistake with doctrine. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't do enough research. That's not it. In many cases, I believe they knew. In many cases, I believe that they know. They're false teachers, and false teachers will lie. And he says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, Judaizers. And so it was used of them and false teaching. We find out that all things will be subjected to Christ. They are and they will be according to Hebrews chapter 2. So, would we link this to the Ten Commandments? I'll be honest, I kind of struggle with that, but it's not that hard. If, if we say, if we have an attitude of that we have no regard for any authority, including God, well then, whose law do we live by? Our own. Who is our God? We are. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We have come to a culture and a time when we are our own gods. And we don't have room to put God in, especially with all of the things that he says. It's going to ruin our fun. Or we don't let anybody else tell us. We just Google. We just see what the new opinion is. It seems right. It's all about love and, and, and not rules and not things that are wrong. We're lawless. We're rebellious. We don't care what God says. And I bet, I bet, if, if depending on how far this sermon goes, there will be people who will be upset at this sermon because I'm giving out God's law. I'm giving out God's truths. I'm giving out God's sound teaching and words, and they're not going to agree with it, and they don't like what they don't agree with. Well, the next couplet that he gives is for the ungodly and sinners. And it's easy to see how these would be similar, but they are 
somewhat different. Ungodly means to be irreverent toward God. We, we would think, well, if it's ungodly, I'm not walking like God would walk. Well, I suppose that would be true, but that's not what the word means. The Greek word, asebes, uh, means to be irreverent towards God or failure to worship God or obey God. You know where it says that they worship the creature rather than the creator? That's ungodliness. We find out in the book of Jude, and I will ask you to turn there, Jude Verses 14 and 15. Jude talks about Enoch in the Old Testament who prophesied of the Lord's coming. And the reason for the Lord's coming was because of ungodliness. That they did not worship God as God. That they indeed were irreverent toward God. And this is what it says. Verse 14 of Jude. It was also about these men, false teachers. Almost every book in the New Testament is going to be talking about false teachers and dealing with first false teachers. You think it was a problem then? You think it's a problem now? Absolutely. That's why we not need to be on guard. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, which I would also believe that we would be part of that. To do what? And count how many times he uses the word ungodly. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. They were irreverent towards God and they failed to worship God as God. It tells us in Romans chapter 5 a bit of good news. It's a terrible sin. And in our sin natures, we either, either exercise it or we have the potential to exercise it. We, I, I believe we all have exercised it at one time or another. Irreverence towards the Lord. The good news is in Romans chapter 5, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So even though this sermon may not go over well, in almost every instance, we find the mercy of God. That if a person is convicted by the Holy Spirit that they are guilty of some of these things, it should reveal that sin to them and point them to Christ who died for the ungodly. And we, we see that man worships himself rather than idols, but it's, we are our own idol. And it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Then we have the word sinner, and this is a popular word for us as believers. I'm not saying it's a great word. I'm not elevating it because it condemns us. But the word sinner comes from the Greek word hamartalos. And so if you study the study of sin in Bible college, it is called with the $64,000 name, hamartiology. It takes you all year just to learn that name. But it comes from this Greek word, a simple Greek word. And what does it mean? And I think we all know what it means. It means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. You would think of an archer who either hits the mark or misses the mark. But what is the mark? Is it your neighbor? I'm a little better than him. I hit the target closer than he did. No. The mark is God. The standard is God. And everyone has missed the mark. That's what it tells us with the usage of this word in Romans 3.23. For all have missed the mark. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The glory of God would be God in all of his character, his qualities, his holiness, his attributes. That's what sin is. Sin is either, either violating the holiness of God or violating the law of God. In either case, we do both. We are sinners. And we are sinners. 
You know, there is a sense in which now, are we better than the world? No. We're sinners just as they are, but we are saved sinners. We are being sanctified. But we're still struggling with sin until this life is over. And I want to just say this. Sinners are not sinners because, oops, sorry, my fault, my mistake, didn't mean anything by it. No. We are not sinners because we happen to sin mistakenly. We are sinners because we have a sinful nature, and that's what causes us to sin. And that is the whole idea of understanding man. And, and even this idea, why is the world so evil? And it is. Just watch the news. In fact, the news thrives on evil and sin. Why? It's a no-brainer if you're a believer and you understand the scriptures because of sin, man's sinful nature. Well, the next couplet, and I need to move on, the next couplet is unholy. And it actually is unholy and profane. So let me move that. Unholy and profane. Now, unholy obviously means you're not holy. But it, it is defined as in opposition to God or what is sacred. In other words, there are things that are sacred because the source is God. We don't treat them as sacred. You've heard the expression, nothing is sacred anymore. That is unholiness. Holiness stems from God and his character. He's called holy in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is called holy. And he's also our holy high priest. And he is separate from sinners. Now, what does that mean, separate from sinners? It means that he doesn't share in our sin or in our sinful nature. He is above it, and he's the one that died for us. That's what made him qualified to be our Savior. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And then in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So that's what made him qualified to be the mediator between God and man. Also, when you look up this word, you find out in 2 Timothy, we're not in there yet, maybe someday we'll get there, we find out in 2 Timothy that the last days will be characterized by unholiness. The question would be, well, when will we ever get into the last days? The answer, I believe, is we are in the last days. The last days are between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, it says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. And we are in the last days. That's why that fits so well. Doesn't that describe our culture? It's amazing, if this is indeed based off of the Ten Commandments, not as a salvation system, it is so interesting to see how it reveals itself to our day and age. To our day and age. And nothing is sacred today. God is not sacred today. Church is not sacred today. You know, give, give it or take it. Take it or leave it, you know. Church, not sacred or sanctified. There's no sanctity of it. And there's no sanctity of life today at all. There's no sanctity of life. Guess what? Your life, you ought to think that's a little bit important. Or otherwise, let somebody take you out. Doesn't matter. Nothing, nothing holy or sacred about life, but it is. It's the, the word that tells us that. And then we come to the word profane. Someone is holy unholy and profane. Now, 
we probably all think of profanity with this, and there's a part of that, but, but what it really means is profane means treading upon that which is hallowed. I don't care. I don't, I don't, I don't care what people think. It is acting according to the world in its words, its opinions, its actions, and not according to holiness. In 1 John, turn with me if you would to 1 John chapter 2. I'll have you turn there with me. Very familiar verses to us talking about worldliness. And that's what profane is. It's acting like the world, treading on everything sacred and hallowed. We are instructed in 1 John 2 verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, and we're talking about that that chaotic evil system, okay? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him because the Father does not love evil and the chaotic unholiness in this world. For all that is in the world, and here we go, this is what it is. This is profanity here. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's what it means to be profane. What about profanity? Well, it is a little different in profanity. I mean, profanity is wrong. But when you start using profanity in the Lord's name, that's when you start treading upon His holiness. Now, I understand when we come to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. It does not mean that you're necessarily using ex- expletives with his name. That's, that's not, it, it, that would probably be like a, a secondary application. What it was referred to in the Old Testament is you would make an oath in the name of God and then have no no concept of keeping it at all. You've profaned the name of God. It is profane, profaning the name of God in one's thoughts and actions and lifestyles. We live in a profane world. Well, at the very end of verse 9, he's going to talk about those who kill their fathers or mothers. Now, it's at this point we really begin to see a little closer connection with the Ten Commandments, which says, honor your father and mother. And so we, we find this. But this is, this is shocking. It, it, you, all of a sudden, just think about sins. Well, what about the sins of those who are father killers and mother killers? What? I mean, I wasn't even thinking along those lines. Well, we should. And that's exactly what the term is. It means a striker to strike your parent or to even kill your parent. And so the words really are father killers, mother killers. It's, it's individuals who have no reverence whatsoever for their parents who brought them into this life, who don't take them out of this life, who brought them into this life, care for them, help them, and all, all that one could do is think about how can I curse them, how can I strike them, and how could I kill them. And by the way, the scriptures do talk about that. Exodus 21, verse 15, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Wow, there you go. There's, there's reverence for you. Verse 17, He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Proverbs reiterates this over and over and over. Proverbs 19, 26, he who assaults his father and drives his mother away, (coughs) pardon me, is shameful and a disgraceful son. And yet you can go to the grocery store and you could see little kids doing haymakers to their moms or their dads. I I, I remember the words of my mother. 
one day. Just give them to me for one day. <laughs> and and, and, and she, she meant every word of it, and it would work. She didn't say that to them. She would say that to me. <laughs> and, 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 and we see this. And then, of course, in, in Proverbs 30, watch this. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. What in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, isn't it interesting that you can tell a rebel when you see one? It's in their eyes. Just look at, just look at those pictures that they take before prison. And, and many of them just disdain, just disdain. They are rebellious towards God, towards the law, towards their parents. And it means that the Lord does not approve of this. And in Old Testament fashion speaking, the ravens of the valley will pick it out. Pick out your eye, and the young eagles will eat it. I knew of a situation back there in, in my wife's hometown um, where there was a, a, a fellow who was uh, sort of a nice fellow. Uh, he was adopted. And we, we were there playing a baseball game, and he came there, and he's going around telling everybody that, don't worry, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm coming into some money here pretty quick. Next thing you know, you find out that he burned his house down with his adopted father and mother in it. He was thinking he was going to get that. Of course, he got caught, and he's in prison now. But why would you think that? I mean, I'm not saying that you would never get upset with something a parent says. Most of the time, it's you who has the wrong perspective, can I say? I speak that as a parent and a grandparent. But can you imagine that? Can you imagine that someone would do that? And there are. We, we, we've seen decade after decade of people who murder their parents. Well, from there, he goes to just plain old murderers. And... And I probably shouldn't use such a common jestful term because it really is the word manslaughter. Those who slaughter men. Those who kill. Now we're not talking about self-defense here and the Old Testament law is quite clear on that. We're not talking about defense here, self-defense. We are talking about either premeditated or not. If you kill someone, the penalty in the Old Testament would be punishable by death. It is interesting that when Christ hung on the cross, we find that there were there there was someone who was guilty of an insurrection and murder. In fact, in fact, Barabbas was guilty of insurrection and murder, and they left him go so that Christ could be killed. And I believe I believe that the, the, the thieves were guilty of such, or one of them was, but for sure Barabbas was. And here's Christ, an innocent man, being numbered with the murderers. And we think of murder, and, and it's got so weird. We think of a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, which we won't even go into. You probably all know. And I, I just, you know, my word, what, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with our world? Sin, sinful nature. Now, let me say, this means we, we believe in total depravity. Total depravity does not mean I do every sin out there. It just means I could. So while we, while we put the Dahmers in a category, we have the same sinful nature. And under the right circumstance, the right temptation, without the Holy Spirit, man could, could repeat that. And there's more than just Jeffrey Dahmer. All right, moving on. We come to now, and by the way, the scripture says, you shall not murder. So we're, we're now following the, the latter half, it seems like. Next, we come to immoral men. And this is found in verse 10. And it's the law that's, that's all revealing this, what sinners are, to bring them to Christ. The immoral men or the immoral man. The Greek word for immoral is pornos which we get our English word pornography from. 
what pornos really means is any sexual immorality of any kind, which would include pornography, which is sin. But it means any thought that we would have, any action we would have. And to be honest with you, we're way beyond the thoughts. Our culture is way beyond the thoughts. You know, as if, as if, as if they're keeping sin at bay by just having it in their mind. We are so far gone with that. Trying to make pedophilia a legal thing. Immoral men. Now it's interesting because the law in verse 14 said, you shall not commit adultery, which is also a sin. And we are thinking of those kinds of sin to have physical relations before before marriage is sin. To have physical relations outside the marriage bond with your spouse is also sin. And it's one of the Ten Commandments. And guess what? Nobody cares anymore. And even Christians, nobody cares anymore. But what's interesting to me is Surely it looks that by this point, Paul is following these laws. And you shall not commit adultery. That's a sin of immorality. And Paul is putting it and applying it to his day and age where there's immoral men and homosexuals. The, the law is saying, do not be immoral in any way. And Paul is applying it to his day and age. Well, I got to say, Paul, you've also applied it to our day and age. But there is some good news. And the good news is that in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul makes the striking declaration, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, I'll explain in a second, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, the law is going to point to sin, but the law also points to Christ, and we find Christ the Savior of all sinners, of all kinds of sin. There is no depths of sin that you cannot be forgiven for, for Christ died for all sin. We come to this next one, and I'm going to have to stop it here. <clears throat> That's a shame because I know you're all wanting me to get to kidnappers. I know it. I know you were. <laughs> but we're going to have to stop here at homosexuals. There is the, the idea that we today don't understand what he really meant by homosexuals. And we give it a wrong assessment. And we end up accusing people who love and have partners of the same gender. And we're saying as Christians... That it's sin when we don't understand the scriptures. I don't know what to say other than you don't understand the scriptures if you believe that. Homosexuals are included here. And it's showing you now the degree and the intensity of sin that he's talking about. And the Greek word is arsena koites. Arson, male, koites, cohabitation in the bed. In fact, some Greek lexicons define this word as sodomites. What's, what's, what's also sad, but for our study interesting, this word here that's used here in 1 Timothy is usually in reference to the dominant partner. There is the submissive or the soft partner in these relationships. Scripture is the one that tells us about that. If you would, let's look once again at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and he's going through all of these, and he ends up saying, 
nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. The word for effeminate, malakos, is a reference not to someone who has a funny walk and seems to walk like a girl, or someone who has a voice like a girl. Of course, sometimes they try to change their voice to make them sound feminine. This is talking about someone who is the submissive partner, the female partner of a homosexual relationship, where the other word refers to the dominant. And this is both for males and females who have a relationship with the same gender. Talks about this in Romans. And, let, and you tell me what this means. For the reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their, it says for this reason, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, not according to God's creation. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's what the scripture says. I'm sorry. Homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle. It is a sinful lifestyle. It is a sinful lifestyle that Romans says, it is so sinful, I have handed you over to sin. What I don't understand is if we're supposed to believe today there are no genders, why is it that they have to role play different genders in these sinful relationships? It's the same thing with, with women. Now, can someone who's a homosexual be saved? Absolutely. In fact, a few years ago, there was a woman who was a known lesbian, and she was befriended by a believer, and the believer was quite gentle because she was quite argumentative and was able to share the gospel, and she got saved. She got saved and repented of her sin, and she married a man who happened to be a pastor, and the Lord was using her in a mighty way in the ministry. And she had an opportunity to talk at a Christian college to share God's great, miraculous salvation. And they ended up canceling her because she might confuse the students that are homosexual and that go to that Bible college. Does this not apply to today? Well, we'll pick it up with the kidnappers and the rest. I, I will just say this. The law is used to show us our sin. In fact, if you're familiar with Ray Comfort and his gospel presentation, he uses that. He begins with and asks the person and says, have you ever told a lie? And of course, we all have. And they say yes. And he says, have you ever stole anything, even if it was a little toy soldier from someone else? And of course, everybody says yes. And then he says, have you ever had immoral thoughts about a woman if he's talking to a man? And truthfully, the man says yes. And so Ray Comfort says, so let me get this straight. You're a lying, thieving, adulteress. You need Christ. Of course, it's a lot gentler than that, but the law points to sin in our lives to point us to the only hope which is in Christ. And the law is beneficial in its moral content, not only for the Israelites, but for the world today and the culture in which we live in today. So when people ask, why is this world so evil? We know why. Sin has been defined by the word of God. Sin is exposed and sin is in our lives and our nature. We need Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.
Father, I don't want to offend anyone, but I especially don't want to offend you. And so when you say something is a, is a sin, when the majority of culture says it's not a sin, and the majority of culture accuses us of being intolerant, well, Lord, so be it. But I would pray, Lord, that there would be many who have their sin revealed just as we have had and convicted of their sin and convicted of their no relationship with God and would hear that Christ died on the cross for their sins and to have faith in him and him alone and no works from the law, we can receive salvation, eternal life, and forgiveness. Oh, Father, I pray that would be the result of this sermon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.